You make software. We're here to help you do it better. I'm Mark Littlewood. You're listening to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Hey, welcome back to the Business of Software podcast. Today, we're joined by Steli Efti with an AMA. He's talking about selling your software better. We love Steli and we think you will too. If you're worried that Steli's reputation for cursing out loud on stage goes before him, don't worry. He's agreed not to swear in anything that he does with business and software and he's stuck by his word. Enjoy. Fantastic. So, um, Steli, you uh, spoke at Business of Software in uh, Boston in September um, last year, and I think did your very first talk without any swearing, which was uh, quite a sight to behold, actually, and quite a, a, a sight to listen to. Um, so, uh, congratulations from that. But uh, what's what's been happening to you since then? And let's uh, just kind of catch up with you and what's going on, um, and then we'll jump into some questions. And we've got a few that are um, preset here from people that have uh, things they want to know, and uh, other people can join us. Yeah, I'm not going to bore you with uh, uh, lots of life updates. Uh, things have been going, uh, you know, well for me, well for the business. I mean, I'm still running uh, Close.io. We're profitable. We're growing fast, and kind of we're heads down doing the same thing, just trying to build a really good product, try to hire amazing people, and kind of build a house we want to live in, build the type of company that we that we love to work for ourselves. Um, so things have been kind of like exciting as always. You know, lots of. Uh, Lots of highs, lots of lows, lots of uh, new opportunities, but overall, um, you know, overall life is good. Excellent. So what, uh, you were sort of wrestling a little bit, I don't think you were wrestling that hard, uh, with the idea of taking venture funding. What uh, What's happened since then? Um, we just decided not to. Uh, so we've been offered, uh, offered a money plenty and plenty of times. We... Uh, you know, we entertained it for a while. There were a few investors that we would sit down with and go, all right, here's the business. Here's how things are going for us. If you were in my shoes and you would take, you know, the $10, $20 million at this point, what the hell would you do with that money? Uh, and how would you put it to good use? And typically, they really didn't have any convincing answers. Um, most, most of the time, it was something around... Well, you take the money because it's offered and because the valuations are great and the terms are great and because you could experiment a lot more and because next year the market is going to crash. And all these things are somewhat true, but at the same time, they're not really the best reasons to fundamentally change the way we run the business. It's not like if somebody gave me a $20 million check and I was able to just take it and deposit it in a savings account <laughs> and not touch it. And and there was no you know board seats and terms and like lots yeah. and lots of influence over. I would totally do that. That's a great deal. But that's yeah. not what's happening here. That money comes with a lot of strings attached, and those strings attached just didn't seem to be good for our customers. Didn't seem to be great for ourselves, especially when there's no good use for that amount of money right now. Because we're profitable, we have enough cash flow to make the investments we want uh, through cash and profits. So we decided not to. This is going to be an interesting year. Uh, we already see a bunch of like unicorns crumble. Uh, lots and lots of uh, investors predicting that this is going to be a really tough year. Um, and uh, it's interesting to be in the position that we are in where it's like we, you don't depend on the next 
venture round to happen in six to nine months. You don't depend on the market to be in a really great spot. Um, so we're a lot more relaxed than a lot of uh, a lot of our competitors. Oh, that's good. That's good to hear. So I mean, I think these things go up and down. I, I'm uh, quite old, so I've lived through uh, at least two booms and busts, and um, people kind of taking money, not taking money, deciding things won't affect them. Uh, when there's less money around, when there's less venture funding around, a certain kind of company is going to be affected because there's less money to go. Um, and depend on stuff. So I think there's going to be a very, very interesting shakeout of the business-to-business ecosystem as well, and the consumer ecosystem as, as investment gets squeezed because a lot of companies have cut their cloth based on a certain kind of level of uh, user acquisition and it, it has been very easy to get money um, up to now. I've got a much, much, much better way of um, generating money there and I, I suppose it comes back to the thing that um, we're going to talk about and, and that's sales and there's this old aphorism that uh, a dollar of investment is worth ten dollars of sales revenue. Um, it's, it's, that's where you're coming from so um, tell us a little bit about Closio and, and uh, the kind of customers you've got, the kind of people you're working with, what are they doing? So, um, so you know, we have a lot of customers around the world. I would say about 60% of our customers are still based in the U.S. or North America, uh, but 40% of them are around the world. And Europe is definitely our second strongest kind of uh, um, market. Uh, you know, a lot of our customers are in the B2B space. Um, you know, a lot of our customers are... Have growing inside sales teams, so sales teams that sell primarily through the phone and email versus yeah. going door to door, um, because we're a very strong inside sales CRM ourselves. Um, that's kind of our bread and butter, and you know, we, the, the, there's a very long tail of of kind of what type of business is using closer and what kind of industry they're in and, and what kind of verticals. But I would say that most of them are in kind of the, the high growth SMB sector. So we're not, we, we don't have a lot of um, super tiny customers, you know, when it's like a single account, a freelancer, a designer that needs a, a super simple CRM to manage all they're doing. That's kind of um, not our sweet spot, as well as the enterprise market. That's something we shy away from. Uh, we don't take any enterprise clients. So kind of, if your sales team is thousands and thousands of salespeople, we're not the right solution. We're kind of in that middle spot of the, the true SMB, where we're talking between 10 sales reps all the way up to two, 300 sales reps that are on the phone, that are selling through the phone and email, and that need a, a CRM that allows them to focus on selling and communicating with prospects and customers, it takes care of the data entry part uh, in an automated fashion so that sales reps don't have to spend half their day doing manual data entry. That was kind of the hypothesis behind why we built the product and why it's gotten pretty successful so far. Salespeople are uber efficient. Some would say lazy, but I'd prefer to think of it as uber efficient. They don't waste time doing stuff they don't have to do. It's not they should. It might they be should. useful for the rest of the enterprise. But. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take a question from the audience here. This is Ben Doak, um, who, because it's related to this, um, it's about Salesforce. What's the biggest thing that sets you apart from Salesforce? Presumably your CRM works. Um, what made you go into a, that competing market? 
Yeah, so uh, what separates us, I, I think Salesforce, um, you know, Salesforce is the best solution for an enterprise business. Um, the more complexity you have in your business uh, and when you have like thousands and thousands of reps and you your CRM needs to integrate with all kinds of other departments and it has to integrate with all kinds of other software, internal and external, and it has just this insane amount of complexity attached to it, Salesforce is going to be the only solution, one of the few solutions that really works. It's never going to work great. Your sales reps will, like these sales reps, they will never go, I love using Salesforce all day long. It's such a great piece of software. Nobody will ever say, this product really helps me sell more, sell better. Um, but it is kind of the only game in town because at that enterprise level, it's not about great end user facing software and products. It's about what really, you know, what is sold to the uh, chief revenue officer and the chief technology officer, what goes through compliance. It's sold at the top level of the company, usually for reporting uh, and data reasons, and then it's pushed down to the individual sales rep as kind of a must-use tool. Um, for us, it's the exact opposite. We are, you know, not the greatest tool. Like we're going to be a horrible tool if you have, if you need closeout to integrate with a million different things, if you need all your departments over, you know, ten different continents to connect. Like the more complexity you have, the larger the size of your organization, the less we're going to be the right fit. We are very much focused on the end user. Right? Yeah. We want a sales rep to use our product and sell more and sell better and be happier at work. That's kind of our number one priority is the sales person itself. And then we have added a bunch of things to make the sales management at the top of the company also somewhat happy, but that's not our number one priority. So in that, in that regard, we're reversing our priorities in the way we've built the product. I think when you're a mid-sized, small mid-sized business, um, you're going to be served a lot better with a product like Close.io. If you're the Coca-Colas and the IBMs of the world, we're not even an option, so it makes no sense. On the, the last question, like what made us go into that market, I get this question a lot, like, Stelly, what made you guys go into the CRM market, right? It's um, undeniably the most competitive uh, space in software, uh, definitely in SaaS software today. And the answer is nothing really like it, it was definitely no strategic thinking behind it if if you had told me five years ago that i would go into the crm space i would have you know thought you're crazy or punch you in the face um but we we kind of stumbled into it. um so we we were running a business called elastic sales that was an outsourced sales team for venture-backed startups we did sales for over 200 different companies and in the process, we developed Close as an internal piece of software because we didn't want to use the the available options out there. And then eventually the product got so good and popular internally that we decided, let's see if there's a market for it. And there was. And the success really has pushed us and propelled us to focus on the product. Um, but who would have known? This could have turned out totally different. We could have launched Close and nobody would have cared. And it would have been just as plausible to me to say, well, we tried this thing. It was a better product, but the market was oversaturated already, so it didn't work out. It did work out for us. So there was a lot of luck and lots of other <laughs> ingredients included in this. Got you. Okay, so let's think about sales. So there's this thing about SaaS products. Um, requiring a price list on the home page and this, that and the other, and they sort of pretty much sell, sell themselves. And this is a question that's come up um, on Twitter a few times. Um, do you put prices on your website? I'm not sure whether that's a, do you, Steli, put prices on Closio? Yeah. Or should you, Steli, as the fount of all knowledge about sales pricing? 
So um, it depends. I don't think there's a. <laughs> I don't, I don't think there's a yes. This is not a yes or no question. Um, it, it depends on your, you need to ask yourself, who is my buyer? And how are they, what's the best way for them to buy? What is the way they're used to buying? And what's the best way for us to ser service them and service ourselves? So typically, if you are working in the uh, if you if you're working in the services industry, it's typically not a great idea to put prices uh, because these projects really range in complexity, and you also don't want your price to be compared with somebody else, where people would compare apples to oranges without knowing. So typically, in, in the services industry, you don't want to just put in your hourly rate or something uh, on a website and go, "This is the way everything will cost." That's not a good idea. If you have a true SaaS product and you're selling it. You know, typically, the higher up you go in the market, the less you want to put a price up. So if you sell to enterprise clients, again, because of the complexity of the customer's requirements, because of the complexity of the sales cycle, because of the amount of customization that it's probably going to take, it's usually not a good idea to just put a, you know, a, a, a typical price on a page and say every enterprise client pays us X, Y, and Z. Usually you see the enterprise version bracket, something that says contact us, right? Yeah. And, and enterprise customers, they're used to that. They will look for that. They will go to your pricing page and they won't look for like what does a single seat look. They will try to find the enterprise contact us button because that's how they always buy. That's So that's what they're looking for. So um, if you sell to really large clients, you typically don't want to put a price up. Um, the lower you go in the market, the more it's probably required, the more your customer is probably used to seeing a price, right? And, or seeing yeah. a, 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 a different brackets of pricing. So, so I think it really depends on your customer and the amount of range and complexity uh, that it takes for you to service every customer and create value for them. Okay, so a lot of people these days are selling stuff that's basically free. And by free, I mean anything from more than one cent a month up to $50 a month. Um, and looking at my credit card statements, I get about $1,000 a month disappearing that way. And it's, I don't know. <laughs> I should I should claim that on expenses at some time. The price point of those pieces of software, it's a monthly thing, it's a SaaS product. There's no value in having a salesperson for those people, is there? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're zero, between zero and 50 bucks a month, yeah. it's very unlikely that a sales team will make economic sense for you. Now, having said that, I think it does make sense for you to do some amount of selling. Um, and that can, in the early days, especially be important and crucial. Just as a customer develop, like just you change the word sales to customer development, and now people are interested in this. But the my, the main thesis here is you want to reach out to people and have real conversations to understand your customer better, to understand your prospects better, to know why people buy, why they won't, and what the values that you're truly creating for them or you don't. And that knowledge, those insights, are even more valuable than the convincing one single person or business to buy or not buy. 
Now, these things are important. So in the early days, I say, even if you don't sell anything, you want to over-communicate and talk to as many people as possible to truly understand your buyer. The, the, the business that understands your customers the best will own them at the end of the day. So if your competitors understand your customer better than you do, they will have them in the future as their customers. So you want to make sure that you truly understand the, the buyer. And that means sending emails, making calls. If you can't show up in person, like so many SaaS businesses will never visit their customers because it doesn't seem required, right? This is not an mm. enterprise sale. But I like to do this, and I, I always feel horrible that I'm not doing this enough That because there's not been a single time where I've visited a customer. It doesn't matter if the customer pays us you know, $10,000 a month or if they pay us $300 a month. For me to visit a customer, shake some people's hands, see how they use Close.io like mm. on screens, talk to some end users that never made the buying decision and go, I'm one of the guys behind this. What sucks about it? What do you like? What you don't? Get the full context. I've never visited a customer without walking out thinking, oh my God, I need to do this more. Like there's so much, so much you can learn by doing this. So yeah. um, I think that a lot of selling can help with insights, with knowledge, with with really truly understanding your customer. But economically, I don't think it makes sense or it's very unlikely that you'll be able to build a massive sales organization selling a product costs 50 bucks a month. That's not going to work out typically. Um, although once you get to a point where um, and I'm thinking about a few organizations that I've had some contact with in the past. There's a company called Huddle who do group collaboration software. And they started off with a very distributed model um, with the hypothesis that they would go into, I don't know, Citibank or someone and get eventually get a kind of critical mass of customers and then it will start to appear on the purchase radar of people and Suddenly people go, oh my God, we've got to go and get this and cut ourselves an enterprise deal. And that just didn't happen. They did get critical mass in various places, but there isn't some magical purchasing person sitting there looking for those economies in, in the kind of software that people are buying. And they had to take a completely different approach. And you know, it's clearly not a selling a monthly user approach, but it's an enterprise sale for a SaaS product. Yeah, I mean, this is this is such a great story. It reminds me of Yammer. Um, mm. I don't know if people still remember it, but Yammer was the hottest thing in town for a little while, and it was like the kind of B2B Twitter with a business model. It's exploding. The use case is so strong, like internal communication within the company. And the idea there was uh, that the myth was really that People would sign up from a certain company and enough people sign up, eventually the company is pressured into wanting to own the account yeah. right, and be able to administer it and see what kind of conversations are going on and all that. And the, the crazy thing is that's such an appealing idea that I think people, some people still hold on to that and think, oh, we're going to start this like viral bottom-up kind of a B2B a product that's going to be growing within the enterprise and then they'll just come with money and, and pay us for it. Yeah. It turns out that in most cases, it, it, that never worked. Yammer is another example where David Sachs, the founder of Yammer, said, we were wrong about this. Like, we got lots and lots of users, but nobody came to buy. <laughs> just nobody came to, just, yeah. to just purchase. So we had to build a sales team, and we had to go and do the traditional enterprise sales model. Um, yeah. So, uh, so so far, I, you know, I don't know exactly how Slack is faring on this. Um, it's kind of another really hot uh, product yeah. in, the, in, in the space. I was going to say but, the one, the one that I think are, are kind of interesting to talk about in that you would think of them as kind of almost free to the user or meaninglessly. Um, 
meaninglessly cheap are, are Stripe, um, Slack, uh, Intercom, I think, is kind of catching uh, up a little bit. Uh, I mean, it's, it started later, but I mean, certainly Stripe and Stripe and Slack, very cheap things, but they have pretty big teams. What are they doing? Well, I do think that um, I don't know about Slack, to be honest, but I do know that at Stripe, for instance, yes, they have like a, lots and lots of startups and kind of younger companies, a very kind of uh, developer-focused audience that will just use Stripe because of the great API and all that. Um, their great reputation in the market, they just have an awesome product. But when it comes to the, when you go larger and larger in terms of client size, they do have a sales team and that sales team does talk to these massive accounts that are not just saying, is this a cooler API payment system? But they're like, we're <laughs> processing, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars here. So to us, a lot of things matter that, that won't matter to a three person startup that's just kicking a new app off. Um, so for, for those, they still do the very, fairly traditional kind of sales model of like talking to these clients and setting up very, very custom deals with them and all that. Look, I'd agree. And I, I, um, I'm not necessarily talking about a payment processor that we've just spoken about, but, um, when you take these, uh, when you take these, um, companies on, even if they have rates and prices, um, published on your website, it's always worth finding someone and tracking them down because, um, let's say you are a payment processor, for example, you publish a rate, but there are other people offering different rates out there. Um, and you can negotiate as long as you've got something that you can uh, pull together and show them in terms of in terms of some volume that are coming through. I see you're blowing your nose with the mutons. So. Um, sort of related to related to this, uh, this is not about free trials. Um, so this is from Sophia Matarazzo from IDR Solutions. Um, I see IDR coming back again this year to uh, to boss. I think possibly even both Europe and uh, US. Um, but Sophia's saying, should you put a 30-day trial on your website for software um, or have a free online trial? And I guess there are then a few kind of questions around if you're doing a free trial, should you have a credit card to guarantee that or should you come on? What are your... What are your what are you seeing? I mean, again, this is one of these questions that's going to be a great big fat. It depends, right? Yes, that's exactly the first words that I would have used. It it depends. Um, these are really like I, I know that we all starving for you know very clear yes no no ambiguity type of answers in life. Like you know when there's plenty of options, I just want somebody to tell me that one is better than all others. Um, but it's just not the truth. So in this case, again, I go back to what I said before, depends on your customer, depends on your competition, um, depends on the kind of product that you have. But my experience has been that, um, so I like trials. Um, I like trials that are not as long typically, or at least what I would suggest is you to think, not just mindlessly give somebody a 30 or 60 or 90 day trial or, or 14 day, whatever the days are, but really think through why is this the amount of days that we that we offer this? Like what's the logic behind this? And oftentimes what I see is that founders have this romantic um, illusion of their their product that people will fall you know, so madly in love with it that the longer the free trial, the more locked in they are and then they won't be able to leave. And, 
and that's because we hear all these great stories of products like you know Dropbox or whatever. Ever it used to be Evernote today, who knows? Uh, but there were all these stories of these products that like the longer the use, yeah, the longer the use, uh, the reuse, the more the lock, the stronger the lock-in. And I would challenge most founders to ask yourself: Is your is your app truly fitting that criteria? Because ninety nine point nine percent of all apps out there are not. They, people might like the product, but it's not like there's a real massive lock-in. Also, I find that most people are too romantic on, on what they assume most people going through during the trial. You know, a, a majority of people will sign up for the trial and will not come back, right? Not unless you communicate and email them many, many, many times to remind them that they did. Just think about yourself in common sense. How many times do you sign up for something with good intentions to try it out and then you just forget, right? Or you yeah. get busy with something. And then you, so. the first thing you realize is you don't tra check your credit card statements for, I don't know, three years. Uh, no, three months, honestly. Three months. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on them every month. So, so this then notice the thing that appears. And that, so, yeah, the, so, that, so that's the, the, the final point of this, which is the um, should you take credit card upfront or not? Um, this. You know, there, there's conflicting studies about this, just like about everything in life. Probably, yeah. uh, there's companies out there like Totango, that's like a success um, customer success uh, company and application. I think they showed some study that kind of the if you ask for credit card upfront versus not after the free trial, obviously the the amount of signups you'll get if you ask somebody to type in their credit card versus the amount of cancellations you'll get if they've already done this, you, you will have less people signing up with their credit card than people canceling at first. But if you look at it a bit more on a bit longer spectrum, not just like the immediate what happens right after the 30-day free trial, but if you look at it from a three-month or six-month perspective, they showed that not asking for the credit card and then getting it uh, overall would create better results in terms of retention, like how many people net-net paid you money over the entire time. Um, I also like it philosophically a little bit. I mean, I'm yeah. totally open to changing my mind whenever business sense kicks in and everything points in the other direction. But if I, if there's no strong case for either or, I think I'd rather have somebody make a buying decision you know, at the end of the trial and say, yes, I want this, versus forcing somebody to give me their credit card with this fake sense of like, this, uh, you know, uh, this is going to be free for a while anyways, and then we'll see if we're going to, you know, if you're yeah. going to be charged. Don't worry about the charging. Just give me your credit card right now yes. and then forget about it later. <laughs> it's, it has a little bit of that taste. So uh, we know we have a 14-day trial, which is very uh, short in our space, mm -hmm. um, and we don't ask for the credit card up front. We ask you for it at the end of the trial, you know, when the trial expires. Uh, and it works really well for us in, a, in, in our space. So actually, coming back to that, because I was going to say there are numerous examples of how this depends, and I'd, I'd like to tell you about uh, Laura at Meet Edgar um, in a minute, but you have a 40-day trial. Um, I know the guys that were setting Salesforce up in uh, Europe, and one of the things that they found that had a massive, massive impact on whether people signed up or not is whether you put live data into the system for a trial. And so they had a, I think it was a 30 or a 60 day trial. Um, there probably was credit card uh, information um, there, but you don't want someone just to kind of go in and plonk around and have a look and go, oh, I could do this with a contact. You really need to get live data into the system. And it turns out that one of the biggest challenges they had was persuading people to put the live data in. And the reason that they had a problem 
getting people to put live data in is that this is when SAS was new. I mean, they were pioneering SAS at this point. People had this sense that it would go into the system and it would never come back. And they worked out that actually if they had a massive button that says export my data and delete it right at the beginning of the trial, they were getting tons more people signing up for the trial. And actually their kind of conversion rate was going from about 5% of people that did a test because they weren't using live data because they were afraid of it. They kind of got a massive, massive bump on the number of people using live data. They got a massive bump on the conversion because as soon as you're using live data, you play with it in real life and you see how things work rather than just see the theory. So there are things like that that obviously they change over time because people are getting more used to SaaS and the cloud and whatever it is, and I'm sure we'll think of another word for it. We're due another word for that, aren't we? I mean, we've been using that for a couple of years. Um, but on paid trials or not paid, or, or um, there's a, a lady called Laura Roder who runs Meet Edgar, which is a Twitter scheduling um, piece, of, a piece of Twitter scheduling software. So it's a bit like Buffer, but, um, but different. She set her business up um, while she was pregnant with her first child. Um, it has always been self-funded. It's always been organically grown. They have never had a free option. <coughs> um, the two things aren't completely disconnected. Because she's, it's a self-funded, um, self-grown business, she saw she needed the revenue to kind of come in to, to do it. I think often a venture-backed business would go down a completely different route to just go, ship, send, do it as quickly as you can. Yeah, I think that, um, so there's pros and cons to everything, I, I really. I, I think it depends has become a staple in the way that I start giving advice to people, uh, but, but, uh, I do think that you know if you're in the end consumer space, free is is in many cases a very very a, a kind of a crucial way for you to get mass market and and it's probably harder for you to charge in an end consumer fifty bucks, a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks a month um, than to monetize it differently. But in the B two B space, I do think that charging money is a beautiful thing. I do think that charging money instills a certain level of um, of discipline that's healthy and good. like Because I do believe that a lot of founders out there, the reason why they want it to be free or the reason why they're, what I, from my perspective, are charging way too little is a uh, lack of confidence. It's truly that. It's like, I'm so afraid of having somebody not buy because we're too expensive that I'll be too cheap. I'd rather be too cheap. And I don't think that's a healthy attitude in business. Like what you need to do is you need to ask yourself, what is the value that we're creating and what is a fair amount of that value that we need to take as revenue to build a healthy business? And then you need to put yourself out there and see if people and customers agree. And if they don't, yeah. you better ask yourself, can we add more value versus just going down in price? Because going down in price is somewhat of a lazy strategy. Just everybody can do that. But ask yourself the <laughs> question of well nobody seems to care enough to pay us 50 bucks holy moly what can we do to make this worth 50 bucks or can we do something else that's worth 50 bucks to people 
and that's a fairly healthy question for a business. Yeah. So, I, so, so I love these stories, especially uh, this specific one of somebody that's like pregnant and still takes the risk to start a business and has kind of a good head on her shoulder and says, we need to charge. We need customers that pay so we can service them. It's a beautiful thing. And she's done it in other businesses and she's had free tiers and all sorts of things. I think the the thing that really made a difference to her, I mean, speaking to uh, a week or so ago, was that because everyone was paying, the questions that she got and the dev requests and the support requests, not only are they being supported, but actually they're there for useful people or, or people that are using the tool all the time or on a regular basis rather than free people who just kind of come in can't be bothered to work out how something's working i see I, I um i've always been um a big fan or or somewhat cautious of you know how do you then separate the free people from the non-free what kind of feedback is truly useful how do you support and service if you have lots and lots of people that are kind of just using the product but maybe not as seriously maybe don't see the value in paying you so so we don't have a free version that pulls out because of that there's a funny enough there's a big argument that i have with this with a good buddy of mine heaton shah was a, a, a sure. you know, very well-known guy in SaaS. He's a big advocate of having freemium in SaaS and that it's absolutely crucial in any type of SaaS to have a free version. Uh, and we even had like a whole podcast dedicated to this where we argue this back and forth. He still thinks we're crazy that we don't have a free version and I still try to still try to convince myself that he's right, but we haven't gotten yet. No, there. no. <laughs> so so we're going... We're going not, back and forth it's not on this. just about conventional wisdom. See, the thing about conventional wisdom is it works for most people, but there will always be outstanding examples of organizations where it doesn't work the most. Um, I'm not, not going to talk about sales comp here because I'm sure that's a conversation for um, you know, many other days and, uh, and many beers, but I, I'm working in a, an organization here called Redgate, and they stopped paying salespeople commission. Um, and they lost some salespeople, and they've got a much better team of salespeople, and they have a much better sales unit now when compensation and bonus for everybody in the organization is tied to the performance of the, of the business, rather than just who's selling that uh, that deal that month or that quarter. So, um, But, I mean, most people would say that's crazy. Yeah, I do think that this is uh, this is a, a a trend that we're going to see more and more of. Uh, I do think that most people will think this is crazy, and again, I do believe that in some cases this is a this would be a very bad idea. Um, mm. So because it truly depends again on your market, your customer, the type of salesperson that you need in your organization to be successful. Um, I do. Well, I if do. You're selling, selling Oracle, you're not in it for the now, are you? Yes, you're not. Um, but but I do believe that that um, it's a you know also. But having said that, if the entire space and market and all the your competitors are aggressively working in in one way, this may mean that you should also follow that path. But it also could mean what you just said uh, earlier that you should do the exact opposite. Because that's one way for you to stand out and, and, and kind of position yourself in a significant uh, way, in a distinguished way, so that, that the, the, a specific group of prospects and customers in the market says, finally, somebody that does it differently, and this is the type of vendor we want to buy from. So that can be also a super successful strategy. I think that 
more and more, I think that um, companies try to come up with more balanced ways to compensate for salespeople. Mm -hmm. Because you want salespeople to be holistic. You want them, on the one hand, you want them to be competitive. Like you want, because it, good salespeople are competitive by nature. They want to have the scoreboard. They want to see the rewards for their outstanding performance, just like athletes do. They don't want just to be like, it doesn't matter how much of a super athlete I am. I just get the average of everybody else on the team. That's kind yeah. of a tough thing to do. But on the flip side, you don't want salespeople to be, purely driven by only selfish criteria because that's the results you're going to get. You're going to get a lot of short-sighted um, revenue that's going to churn, revenue that's going to create a bad PR, revenue that's going to create issues and problems and a lot of internal conflict. So I think that you, it is a trend to see more balanced compensation structures for salespeople that try to take into account a more longer-term view, a more is this healthy money and not just how many dollars did you bring in, but what kind of dollars did you bring in and do they sustain? Uh, so I think that's definitely a trend is something that, that I, I'm a big fan of. Cool. Um, selling to techies, people that hate, I mean, really hate sales. No, partly because they know they're, they're just, they're never going to be salespeople, even though they are salespeople. Um, and I think everyone is a salesperson on one level. I've had three conversations in the last two weeks with people that have specifically said, have you got a video? Have you got something to watch about how you can sell into people, the dev community, the kind of you know, the ops people, kind of people that are allergic to spam, they're allergic to email marketing, allergic to marketing, to sales, to anything. Um, these, these people exist. There's a bunch of companies that are targeting those type of organizations and now trying to scale that activity and really struggling. Yeah, um, so this is an interesting one. So, so um, I mean, again, I would just try to look at some examples of companies that have done this very successfully. Um, you know, in the so, US... Atlassian. Atlassian is a great example, uh, or may or may not be a good example, depending on what you're doing. Um, you have you have uh, New Relic in the U.S. that's very successful. Um, GitHub used to be an example. Not exactly sure. Like they're not being used as much of a glowing example for an amazing company anymore in recent times. But I don't know how well they're doing or not. Um, but there are there are a bunch of there are a bunch of these companies out there, uh, kind of selling to developers is a very specific building technology that's sold to developers is a yeah. kind of a growing growing niche. Um, and I do believe that you again, it really depends. Like, is this going to be a tool that millions of developers are going to be using, and then we're going to have some very few cases of like massive organizations that are going to be using this as well. Is this going to be used mostly in the SMB context? Like, what's the context of just using this will not be enough, right? You need some kind of usage that then will translate into some people and some businesses paying for it. And then the question is, who are these businesses and how do they buy? And uh, I do know that that there's a, a bunch of companies like New Relic is probably more aggressive on their sales side. Mm. They have highly educated sales force. They have a great sales culture, but they are not shying away from selling or emailing you or being on, like being on your case to make things happen. Um, 
but then there's companies uh, um, that that are super hands-off. You know, they spend a lot more time doing community efforts and events and 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 run hackathons and just spend a lot of time, you know, pushing things to the open source community, just making themselves a great and respected citizen in the developer community, and letting developers then appreciate that back because they've built a great product in, in, in using the product a lot. And then they have a separate division that tries to sell to the large organizations. Um, but at the end of the day, you're going to have, you're going to, if you're selling B2B, if you don't sell to prosumers or end consumers, it's a high likelihood if your tool doesn't cost just a few bucks and it's something that you want any help. Um, kind of uh, hobby developer to be paying for. If you want real businesses to pay for things, you got to do some selling sooner or later in some context. Um, so I think that's that's a great a great point. Although just to um, come back on the evangelist thing, aren't evangelist salespeople without a quota? If they're good, yes. Um, <laughs> if, if they, if that's why that's why I love the term sales. I'm not usually a huge fan of business development or evangelist because uh, the one beautiful thing about selling and sales is that it removes a lot of ambiguity from the task and from uh, success. It's a very clear result. If we meet, I either closed the deal or I didn't, right? Something happened or it didn't happen. If I do business development, uh, we meet, if we liked each other and we thought this was a great meeting, this might be all the results that I need to drive. So there's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot more fuzziness around what the results are that I'm supposed to generate. And I think that a lot of people, I don't think that that necessarily is a bad thing, but I do think that some people that are attracted to that position or some businesses that create that position versus a sales position do it because they like the comfort of that ambiguity. They like that, oh, we do. We have lots of conversation with all these potential business partners and we, we create all these motion that feels like progress, but nothing is really accomplished. <laughs> versus, versus in selling, it's very hard to create the impression that lots and lots of things are happening if there's yeah. no money being made. Uh, so yeah. that's that's what I find beautiful about sales is very clear, right? You generate outcomes, yes or no, money or no money. So it's very clear if it's working or not. And there's other positions that are a bit more fuzzy, ambiguous, evangelist. Lots of people like us. I went to a, a hackathon and I bought some people beer. Was that really productive? It's hard to say. It's tough to say. Yeah, I'd say that's productive. You should never be discouraged. I'm never, ever going to get in people's um, people's way if that's what they want to do. Um, okay, let's make this a little bit personal. So I've got a friend, um, well, he's a friend now, but he was a guy I met in Dublin um, who runs a company called Tito. And Tito is event management processing software. Uh, we've been using Eventbrite for a few years. Um, we're still using it for uh, US, but we wanted to do work with Tito because it's a small organization, organically grown, really care about stuff, make stuff happen, um, really developer-friendly, um, has got a number of companies, a number of events that he's running uh, the, the the event back-end for, and the stuff is brilliant. And I've been speaking to him a bit recently. How's it going? It's great. I just don't know where to... I don't have enough inbound inquiries to set up a sales team. Um, I don't have enough outbound calls I think when people find us they like us and if they're in a position to switch they move so 
two questions. One, what's that advice you can give someone uh, like this, who's found a CEO of the business, pretty techie, how does he go about getting his next set of calls? And if they're important, how does he make that connection with those people? So talk us through that. Um, first of all, how does he decide where he's going? And then secondly, how do you approach those people cold? So um, when it comes to what should be the next step, this is going to be the running theme of this hangout. It depends, right? Um, so I think, I think so. But to be specific, what does it depend on? Well, again, it depends on the market, but and the customer. But also, in this case, depends on his strengths or the team's authentic, natural strengths. What are some things that the team can do, either on the marketing or sales side, that they have some kind of an advantage or they can see themselves doing? Um, so that's one thing, uh, and, and you know, if, if they have some internal talent on the marketing side and they think they could create some great content, then try that and focus on that versus building it up on sales team versus if they feel like, you know, in person or with, if they feel like, hey, we have this one person on the team that has outbound sales experience and they had a lot of success, they're not doing something else here, but they, they can do the job, maybe that's what they should be trying. Um, it, it's really asking yourself what's the market, but also what is our team good at? And or, or if you're equally inexperienced in all areas, which one area makes you most excited, right? Um, so so that's, one, that's one set of questions. The On the flip side, um, one thing that I would advise somebody like that, first and foremost, is to master referral sales and become really, really good at that. And I've written about it, we can link up to this, um, how to do B2B referral sales right. And to, most most companies and most people are really bad at referral sales because usually you ask for referrals once you've got somebody to agree to be a customer. And at that point, you already got a win. Um, so now you're asking somebody, hey, do you know somebody that you could refer to us? Usually people answer by saying, well, let me think about it, not sure. And you don't want to push now anymore. You, you just got a new customer. You don't want to turn the conversation sour, right? So most people will just go, okay, sure. Uh, whenever you think of somebody, we highly yeah, appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, please, my software. Don't cancel your card. <laughs> please. Yes. Um, We've been there. <laughs> all been there. Uh, what I would suggest to do uh, differently is to push one more time. So here's how I would do it. I would ask somebody, hey, now that you're getting all these benefits, can you think of one other person that you like and respect in this space that you should know that we exist? And then when people tell me, well, we need to, uh, I don't know, I need to think about it. I say, great, I'm sure over time there's going to be plenty of these opportunities, but just to get us started, just one person, one person you really like that runs events as well, who is that person? So I'll push one more time. That's a little bit of an uncomfortable thing to do. But it pays dividends because here's, in my experience, what happens. If I ask 10 people for referrals and out of the 10, nine tell me I need to think about it, just by pushing them one more time, four to five will now give me a name. The rest will still tell me in a nice or not so nice way, hey, back off. I said I need to think about it. And in those cases, I'll throw my hands in the air and I go, I totally respect that. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask one more time, right? But that's totally fine. I'll leave them alone. So you should but, pencil them in as a maybe. <laughs> yes. I'll check in with you later. That's right, the, people, yeah. the people that give you a name, here's the crucial part. Whenever you close a new customer, whenever you win a new customer that came through a referral, you need to close the feedback loop. Mm 
What that means is the moment you buy and you were a referral from Bob, the very next thing I tell you is, hey, Mark, who do we have to think for making this happen? And people typically like wonder and go, well, I don't know, you? No, no, who put us in touch in the first place? Oh, Bob, yes, Mark, let's do, do, let's do this. You do this and I will do this as well. Let's quickly ping uh, Bob and let him know that this was a good connection, that we appreciate that he put us in touch. The moment you close the feedback loop and Bob hears now from both sides, this was great, thank you for putting us in touch. What does Bob do? Thinks of more people to refer to, right? And now you're creating a real system. And your feedback loop, and now, so this is the first. This is the first way of doing outbound in a very warm way. This is still outbound. This is still you're still reaching to reaching out to people that didn't ask, uh, you know, for your solution. That weren't in the market for your solution, but you do it through a warm source from a new customer. But if you are a founder like the the one that you described, where you have a product that's awesome. And you, when people find it, they like it, they appreciate it, and you service them really well, you need to focus on getting great referrals from them. Uh, and if you do that in a disciplined way, this can be a good growth engine. It's not gonna, you know, it's not gonna 10x your company in a month, but it's gonna give you a really good reoccurring source of high quality leads. And I, I think the other thing that's a, a benefit there to to the kind of tech crowd who are potentially uncomfortable with the kind of idea of selling is that you're getting qualified I mean you are you are less likely to be phoning someone up or emailing someone who's going to ignore you um, and I mean I know there's this incredible thing in, in sales and, and even not sales of uh, how did it go with Joe today uh, I don't know he hasn't given me an answer do you have a conversation with him I emailed him and then that's it. How many emails do you get a day that don't work, um, that don't arrive, that you don't get an answer to? So, I mean, finding other ways is is uh, is, a, is a very important part of that, I think. Um, so, your cold call to someone like that, or your first email, um, once you've once you've got past that. Yeah, we'll have an introduction. How are you gonna? How do you have that first conversation? What's the thing that you think about? So first of all, I, I would uh, I would make it as frictionless as possible. Um, as frictionless as possible for people to give that referral. So in many cases, you wanna you know if somebody agrees to this, you wanna send them an email. If you're on the phone with them, I would send the email right as I talk to them, with like the entire introduction email already written up and I will tell them, hey, yeah. I've written this up for you, so all you have to do is copy and paste and put us two in CC, so you have to do zero work. Uh, if you want, you can customize this or edit this, or if you want, you can write it from scratch. But you don't want to make this an effortless thing for, for the refer, right? Because you don't want me to have to think about how to sell your product, how to explain it. The moment that I struggle with like how to explain to my friend what you're really doing, I'm like, uh, let me do this other email first, and then I'm then I'm gone. So you, you want to write this up and have a template that you can send to people to make introductions. Um, so in most cases, you can just uh, get the intro uh, in an email, then schedule a time to have a quick conversation with somebody. Um, you know, you can be more aggressive and try to get somebody's phone number to just call them. 
uh, you know, there have been times where I call somebody while sitting with a person that originally referred and saying, hey, I'm sitting here with Mark. <laughs> he just said this and this. Like, this is very aggressive. Uh, but you can be a lot, you know, but this is, this, you can do it a lot less aggressive where you just get an email. Uh, we're both are CC and you reply, you try to find a time and then you jump on a call and have a conversation. And all you really have to do is just say, hey, you know, uh, this is what we're able to do for Mark in a sentence. I asked Mark who he knows and respects in this space that you know we exist. Your name came to mind. I'm sure you're not in the market right now. This is not about selling you immediately. The, my whole idea is to get to know you a little bit, tell you a little bit about us, and then see maybe there's short-term potential. Maybe a year or 10 from now, we're going to be able to work together. This is about just starting a relationship. Right? So you take the pressure out of the conversation. Um, a lot of times that enables the other party to listen without being too protective and without being too cautious of and fearful of being sold to. And if the, if the, it all depends on how good the reference is. If, if, you know, if my brother sends me a reference to something that I trust my brother to have a good taste on, it's a different type of situation than if some person that I met 10 years ago at a meetup event sends me a reference, right? So the quality of reference will make all well, the if difference. That person, in the world. If that person had waited 10 years to make that intro, <laughs> it might be just the best intro. It might ever. just be the best It thing might ever. be. <laughs> but but um, so the, the, I oftentimes, all, the, the only type of uh, prospects that I will, uh, or the only type of customers I ask for references are great ones. It's like, my question is, do I want more people like Mark in my life? And if the answer is yes, then I ask, Mark, who do you love that I should talk to? If, oh, if, well, if, it's easy. I love everyone that goes to business and software. You know that. So. There you go. There you yeah. go. Uh, and I can only attest to that, having been there last year in Boston. That is a great <laughs> crowd. It is a great crowd. It's fantastic. And yeah, it's going to be, uh, well, it's all going to be fun this year. We're going to Dublin, as you know. So uh, seeing, you, uh, seeing you over there, we've got some uh, other very, very cool uh, people signed up. Did you... Um, no, you didn't meet Rand Fishkin, did you, from Moz? No, no. Um, big oh, fan, but I have never met him. He's. Uh, I think you should start growing some moustaches there, my friend. Um, so my, my, my education for you is that moustaches, um, you can only have a pair of moustaches unless you're um, asymmetric. So moustaches, oh. that's one, that's the other. Yeah. Um, so I learned that on Trinity College High Table uh, a few months ago. Was uh, was banged to rights by an English professor who uh, took me apart for saying moustaches. Um, so that's one thing. So grow your moustaches in uh, preparation for, uh, for 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 meeting Rand. Um, and I'm going to leave you with a, a question, which is, what's well, they say? A bit left field, but I'm I'm not so sure. Bit left field, but how do you keep the energy up for the hustle? Being a dad, founder, etc., is hard enough. Yeah, lifestyle uh, tips. I think that's related. Lifestyle tips. Um, so I think that my best tip there is to create good habits. Um, so you know that could be to meditate regularly. It could be to work out and be physically active. It could be to get enough sleep. It could be to have interests outside of work. Um, could be a variety of things, but but I I've definitely gone from one extreme of being an entrepreneur that worked for 18 hours a day, seven days a week, and eating pizza and drinking Red Bull all day long, to now you know being uh, spending a lot more time on quality habits and have a lot more 
balance. And that makes a big difference in how consistent I can be in, in my productivity on a day-to-day -day basis. It made a big difference. That's very interesting. Um, just to, you know, how you always listen to someone and you hear what you want to hear. Yeah. I was writing notes and this is what I wrote. Create bad habits. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. And also, are you are you still doing your um, your little motivational talks? I know we had we had a, a conversation about that before. There. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if you go to um, salesmotivation.close.io, you can subscribe to that. Yeah. Monday to Friday, if you uh, put in your email address, uh, every morning. Uh, I'm sending you a one-minute video where I just share a quote and then a little action item, just something to get people fired up. Uh, lots of people seem to be enjoying it. I definitely do enjoy recording these videos. And I started doing them last year in May when we first talked on Skype and agreed That's for it. me to come to, to Boston. Um, so we've been doing them now for a while. People really love them. So for for somebody like uh, the the one that asked the question, uh, uh, maybe maybe watching a one minute video every day can be a little hack to getting motivated. Um, so that was at that point you were famously sweary and you were famously um, what's the word? Flaky's not quite the right word, but you you were you had a great reputation for starting stuff and uh, not not following it through amongst your kind of your core group of friends and didn't they bet you that you couldn't do the sales motivation thing for a month and you took the bet? So a version of this is, is the truth. Uh, so I, I've said many, many times in the past that for the first 10 years of my entrepreneurial career was very inconsistent. That was kind of my biggest flaw. That's not been the case uh, happily for not been the case for the last four years or so. So, uh, but there was one person, a, a, a customer of, of Close.io, they subscribed to this and then send me an email betting me that I'm not going to keep this up for more than 30 days. He was like, there's no way you're going to be doing this for more than 30 days. And at that point, I had already pre-recorded 60 episodes because it's a minute. <laughs> so I made him a bet. Uh, and the bet was that if I do, I only, I'm not a betting man, so if I bet, I know I win. Um, and I told him if I win, he needs to record a motivation video that I share then as well. And he, he did. And he struggled with it a lot, which was very cute and very charming. Excellent. Uh, so that's, that's that story, yeah. Fantastic. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.